Susan is on the floor. There's a small pool of blood around her head. She's not moving. She's cold to the touch. And they very quickly realize that in fact, she is deceased. Loyalty was everything to Susan. Uh, she learned it from her father. It was the mafioso way. Excuse me, objection. On screen now is a statement that Durst believes the rules don't apply to him. That is clearly argued. Your Honor, that is the evidence that he, he presents. I'm getting away with this. I'm beating the government. So Seymour goes through the revolving door first. Then I go into the revolving door. And from behind, like a sneak, he takes his full strength. He was strong. And he shoved the glass. And I went around and around and I fell out. Oh my God. I fell out on the street, on my knees. And he's guffawing. It's the funniest thing he's ever seen in his entire life. The story of Robert Durst and his alleged murder of three people spans nearly four decades. It begins with the disappearance of his wife in 1982 and culminates in Durst's current trial for the murder of Susan Berman. This is a bizarre, fascinating saga that's been covered by newspapers, televised media, and of course the 2015 HBO documentary series, The Jinx. But whether you followed this case from the beginning or you've never heard of Robert Durst, this podcast will tell the story in a way that will make it feel completely new. We are going to do something groundbreaking. Instead of telling you the narrative behind a major trial after it's finished, we're going to present the story surrounding Durst's trial for the murder of Susan Berman as it is happening. You will hear riveting testimony and commentary based on our extensive research. One more thing that makes this podcast unique. Because we are covering the majority of the trial in real time, we have no idea what's going to happen next. Will there be tension between the lawyers, outbursts from witnesses, Will Robert Durst testify? What will the jury decide? We're going to find out together. I'm Carrie Antholis, editor and publisher of CrimeStory.com, and this is Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst, presented by Crime Story Media and ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's March 4th, 2020, the first day of the Durst trial at the Los Angeles Airport Courthouse. The $107 million complex boasts a shining glass facade 
and a penthouse helipad. But the pristine exterior does little to shield the court's occupants from seasonal illness. You may hear some coughing in the audio, probably just the common cold, but it's hard to listen now without thinking, <coughs> coronavirus. <coughs> in less than two weeks, the entire Los Angeles court system will shut down as COVID-19 confined people to their homes. The man at the center of this trial, 77-year-old Robert Durst, sits hunched at the council's table, seemingly unfazed by the throat clearing behind him. Durst is frail. He wears hearing aids and requires physical assistance in and out of the courtroom. His gray, close-cropped haircut reveals a bulging ridge on his skull, a scar from when doctors installed a shunt to drain fluid from his brain. As Deputy DA John Lewin stands for his opening statement, Durst's face is impassive. Lewin takes the podium, boots up his PowerPoint, and addresses the 12 jurors and 11 alternates. Now, opening statement gives me an opportunity that I will not have at any time during the rest of this case. This opening statement is going to be your opportunity to see the evidence in a logical and in a primarily chronological order. Unfortunately, this will probably be the only time. Lewin is sturdy. He looks like a character from Dragnet. A just-the-facts-man prosecutor, Lewin won his first cold case victory in 2002 and hasn't lost a case since, earning him the nickname the King of the Cold Cases. But for Lewin, more appears to be on the line than his flawless record. This feels like it's about rebuilding the integrity of the L.A. District Attorney's Office. The acquittal of O.J. Simpson, the mistrial of the Menendez brothers, and the acquittal of three out of the four officers charged in the Rodney King case have tarnished the reputation of the L.A. County prosecutors. Lewin has been building his case against Durst for nearly five years. This trial is a high-profile opportunity for him to prove the competence of his office. In his opening, this means getting straight to the point. So as you are all aware, this case involves what the people are going to present as three different homicide cases, and in fact, three different murders. The killing of Kathy Durst, the killing of Susan Berman, and the killing of Morris Black. So I'm not going to start at the beginning. I'm going to start at the beginning of the case that you are here to decide, which is the murder of Susan Berman. December 24, 2000, a little after 12 noon, the following 911 call was received by Los Angeles Police Department. LAPD operator 348. Yes, hi. Um, I live in Benedict Canyon, and um, my next door neighbor, one of our other neighbors, um, found her dog on the street yesterday. Uh-huh. And um, was it dead? Or? Oh no, 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 no. We have her. Okay. The problem is, um, they gave us the dog, and we went over next door to see if Susan was home. And her car's in the driveway. Her back door is wide open. That was Catherine Cutter calling 911 to report that her neighbor Susan Berman's dog had strayed from her home and that her back door was wide open. In response to the call, LAPD officers drove to Susan Berman's small rental home in Benedict Canyon, a Los Angeles neighborhood just north of Beverly Hills. 
Upon arrival, they saw Susan's dogs running around in the yard. The back door was wide open. So officers, they go in, and when they go into the back bedroom, this is what they see. Susan is on the floor. There's a small pool of blood around her head. She's not moving. She's cold to the touch. And they very quickly realize that, in fact, she is deceased. Lewin continues by discussing initial assessments made by the police officers at the scene. They're trying to figure out, what do we have here? Well, she's been shot. They can see that. They find a casing in the corner. Lewin clicks to the next slide of his PowerPoint presentation. White letters on a black background read, the motive for the murder was not robbery or burglary. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I believe that what's on the screen now, the motive for the murder was not robbery or murdery, is arguing. That's Dick DeGarren, Robert Durst's lead defense attorney. DeGarren is a legendary, headline-snaring Texas lawyer, known for representing politicians, alleged Ponzi scheme orchestrators, and suspected murderers. In 1993, he negotiated with the FBI on behalf of David Koresh in Waco, Texas, prior to the siege of the religious leader's compound. In 2003, he helped secure an acquittal for Robert Durst in another murder trial in Texas. But we will have much more on that later. Now, just shy of 80 years old and suffering from an unspecified heart ailment, DeGarren nevertheless still has boyish features and an accent straight from the Old South. That's not a statement of what <clears throat> the uh, Ladies and gentlemen, the opening statement is not meant to be taken as an argument. This is a description by, uh, by the lawyers for each side during their opening statement of what they expect that the evidence will continue. That was Judge Mark Wyndham, a thoughtful jurist who bears a passing resemblance to late-night host Stephen Colbert and occasionally preaches on the therapeutic power of meditation in response to the frequent clashes between the lawyers. So the evidence will show absolutely and unequivocally that the motive for Susan's murder was not robbery or burglary. There's no forced entry that they can find. They don't see any signs of ransacking. They don't see any sign of a struggle. They don't see any evidence that anything has been taken. And in fact, Susan's purse with credit cards, her ID and cash is sitting on the kitchen counter. The evidence is gonna show without question that Susan knew her killer. Now, Susan, you're going to hear a lot about her, is somewhat of a paranoid woman. She is the kind of person who, you're going to hear testimony, would never have opened her door to a stranger. You're going to further have evidence that at the time Susan was shot, her back was to the killer. So the evidence will show that she let the killer into the house she turned her back to them. She wasn't scared. She didn't know what was going to happen. 
And then she was executed, shot in the back of the head at very close range. Thankfully, she did not see it coming. In order to really understand this story, we have to go all the way back. We have to talk about who is Robert Durst. Robert Durst is the eldest son of Seymour Durst, a Manhattan real estate developer who amassed one of the largest privately owned real estate conglomerates in New York City. In 2015, Forbes valued the Durst Corporation at $4.4 billion. Lewin will present evidence that Robert Durst's worldview was shaped partly by his wealth, but also by a unique and acute sense of entitlement. A new card appears on the PowerPoint screen. Excuse me, objection. On the screen now is a statement that Durst believes the rules don't apply to him. That is clearly argued. Your Honor, that is the evidence that will be presented. Did, did he make such a statement? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, in order to understand these three homicides, why they occurred and how they occurred, one of the things you have to understand is who Bob Durst is and his view of what rules apply to him and what rules don't. That's going to become important as the evidence comes out because you're going to see in the way that these crimes were committed in the way they were covered up. The Mr. Durst makes clear explicitly that in essence, I can do whatever I want. In presenting evidence to support this statement, Lewin plays several interview clips. The first comes from the 2015 HBO documentary series, The Jinx, which was produced by Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling. While the interviews of Durst seen in The Jinx were edited for television, the jury is presented with the raw footage to avoid any bias or manipulation. In the interviews, a laid-back Durst answers questions posed primarily by Jarecki. During this specific clip, Durst recalls a time after college when he collected food stamps despite his substantial wealth. All you have to do is show them a, a, a bank account with zilch in it and sign a bunch of papers saying, you know, got nothing. And I would get food stamp. And I got a big kick out of using food stamp. Wh which part did you get a kick out of the, going into a store? Yeah, I'm getting away with this. I'm beating the government. The next clip that Lewin shows the jury comes from an interview Lewin had with Durst after his arrest in 2015. In it, Durst discusses stealing a water bottle from an airport. There's the waiting in line at the airport, right. and it's 20 feet to the cashier. Right. Fuck it, I'm going to take the water and leave. But I mean, the reason that people don't, you know, we're taught, hey, you can't steal, or you have to do, follow this rule. I didn't have to follow. So... Bob Durst is very honest about the fact that the rules don't apply to him. It's just who he is. And that idea, that way of operating in life dictated how 
Bob Durst not just treated people, how he got rid of them when they were problematic, and how he chose to cover up his misdeeds after they were third. Lewin explains that after Durst graduated from Lehigh in 1965, he moved to L.A. to attend graduate school at UCLA. Durst never finished his master's. He admits that instead of studying, he spent his time smoking pot and going to scream therapy. It was during that time that Durst found a kindred spirit. Now, while at UCLA in the mid-60s, that's when Bob Durst met Susan Berman. And they became very close, really best friends, and she became um, his confidant. It was never a romantic relationship. They were just very close friends as they shared certain things in common. Susan had thick black hair and blunt bangs. Friends say she was a natural storyteller, talking a mile a minute with a charisma that attracted listeners like moths to lamplight. Robert Durst and Susan Berman had a mutual friend named Nick Chavin. He'll be an important witness in this case. To clarify Susan and Robert's relationship, Lewin plays a video of Chavin's testimony from a prior hearing. If I were to ask you to describe the relationship between Bob and Susan Berman, how would you characterize it? As long-term best friends, I mean, they went back to UCLA in a friendship. Would Bob Durst ever tell you um, anything about how he felt about Susan? Just that they were very close. I mean, we both would laugh about her eccentricities and, and, and such, but uh, they were very, very close. And with what you saw, did you believe that those feelings were reciprocated? Yes. Susan often told me the same thing. And when you said Susan would tell you the same thing, what would Susan tell you about? How much she loved Bobby. Lewin then introduces another clip from his 2015 interview with Durst after Durst was arrested in New Orleans. Now, with respect to the closest of his relationship, Mr. Durst is going to concede that he and Susan were very close, as he did during the 2015 interview uh, in New Orleans jail shortly after his arrest. You said Susan was your best friend, right? I mean, yeah. No? Yes. Oh, oh no, I'm, Susan I'm sorry. Susan was, was probably closer to me. Two years of my life, Kathy was my best friend. Right. But other than that, Susan was my best friend. And, and Susan was a very loyal person, would you agree? Absolutely. Now, during the same interview, the defendant himself made clear that Susan would go to almost any length to protect him. The people closest to Susan, everybody says that they think that she would have done anything for you. Damn close. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So let's talk for a moment about Susan Berman and who she was. So Susan Berman was the only child of Gladys and David Berman. Susan's father, Davey, was known as Davey the Jew Berman. And he was a notorious gangster. And he actually replaced Bugsy Siegel running the Flamingo after Bugsy Siegel was killed by New York mobsters. And so Susan grew up in Las Vegas and she was kind of like the princess of Las Vegas. Liberace would play at her birthday party. She hung out at the casino, and she was very close to her father. Unfortunately, by the time Susan was 12 years old, uh, both her parents were gone. Her, her father died during a surgery, and her mother ended up um, institutionalized and dying when Susan was very young as well. So as a result of Susan's upbringing, Susan maintained a strict code of honor and was incredibly loyal to her friends. One of these friends was producer Linda Ost, who met Susan shortly after the publication of Easy Street, Susan's memoir which explored her childhood as a mob boss's daughter. Linda signed on to produce a film adaptation of Easy Street for which Susan would write the screenplay but after several years, the project fell apart. Linda Obst, who was a close friend of Susan's, she's gonna to testify to many different things in this case. One of the things she's gonna discuss is this issue. Loyalty was everything to Susan. Uh, she learned it from her father. It was the mafioso way. Uh, if you had a friend who took care of you, you took care of them for life. Uh, she was extremely loyal to a number of lifelong people, uh, of people for life in a lifelong way. Linda Oaks will further testify to that dynamic as she observed it of Susan and the defendant's relationship. So something happened when she met Bobby Durst. It was like, here's a man as powerful as my father, and he needs me. There is a, a tendency sometimes in murder cases for victims to become angelic. You are who you are. Everybody has their flaws and everybody is who they are. And Susan, who was a victim of murder in this case, could be very, very manipulative. You're gonna hear from her close friend, Stephen Silverman. He's going to testify as to how Susan softly manipulated she wanted things from One way or another, Susan would get whatever it was she wanted. She would, might start out politely, but then she would really start threatening you or telling you, I did this for you, I did that for you. In your experience, is Susan the kind of person who, in your experience, would overtly blackmail a friend? Overtly. No, Susan was too clever to do anything overtly. She would find other ways. She would hint that she had something on you. She, she pulled that on me. Linda Obst corroborates Stephen's account of Susan's skills at manipulation. Linda Obst will testify, and she will 
provide a little more detail as to how she had observed Susan manipulate those around her. If you were a person that she deemed necessary in her life, emotionally or financially or career-wise, she could be unbelievably charming to keep you there. Most of her charm, except for love, was in order to survive. She was always in survivalist mode. Susan's murder may be why the jury is here, but in order to understand the events surrounding her death, Lewin must first tell them a different story entirely. It's the story of Durst's first wife, Kathy, who disappeared in 1982. We have to go back to the beginning, and that starts with who's Kathy Durst? Robert Durst met Kathy in the fall of 1971. He was 29 and she was 19. Kathy was from Long Island, raised lower middle class in a big Irish Catholic family. To tell the story of the beginning of the couple's relationship, Lewin plays a clip from the Jinx interviews. Where did you first meet her? I first met Kathy at a party that my friend Stuart Altman took her to. And when you first met her, I guess, at the party, what, what was your first uh, reaction to her? Pretty. Was she your type? Had you had a type? Did you have No, I'd never had a type. We, we spoke for a good while, nice conversationalists, um, planned on going out, you know, in several days and did that. You were older than she was at that time. Nine years is a long time. I had oodles of education. She had zilch. Girl from a small town with, with, without, you know, not, no big deal. I mean, for me, I, I, I guess you would say I was marrying beneath me or something like that, or she was marrying up or well or something like that. But I never got there. I mean, money didn't mean anything to me. It didn't make any difference to me where she was from. Bob Durst also talked about the experience uh, with Kathy's family and what it was like meeting them and how he interacted with them. Lewin plays another segment from the Jinx interview. These experiences with her family were kind of like Bob meets the average American family. More than meat, Bob is forced to spend time with the average American family. Bob is supposed to be polite and cooperative and pleasant and engage in the same conversations that they are. And I just couldn't do that. I just kept feeling like I should show them that I hate, despise these things that they do and um, ridicule these things that they do. Do you remember ridiculing in front of them? Well, talking about my penis in front of Kathy's mother, that was about as extreme as I could imagine. On April 12, 1973, which was the defendant's birthday, he and Kathy were married. The newlyweds moved to New York City, splitting their time between a Manhattan penthouse on Riverside Drive and an apartment on 86th Street. They also bought a weekend lakeside cottage an hour away in South Salem. 
During that time, Kathy attended nursing school and Robert worked for his father at the Durst organization. But the life of a businessman never appealed to Robert. He didn't want to sit around a table and talk about documents all day, so he acted out, arriving late, stoned, or skipping work entirely. Lewin tells the jury that Mr. Durst lived his entire life from how he worked to how he committed crimes with the same attitude. I can do whatever I want. Eventually, that kind of mindset affected his marriage. Now, from the beginning, the relationship between Bob and Kathy was unequal. Defendant was older. He was more experienced. He was more educated. He was wealthier. And he was also, the evidence is going to show, uh, unfaithful from the start. Uh, during the marriage, Mr. Durst had a series of affairs with other women. Later on in the marriage, Kathy is also going to be unfaithful. The evidence will also show Mr. Durst strongly believed he could cheat, but Kathy better not. Would you have been jealous if you knew that she was having an affair? I'm sure I would have. So was it you were proudly the bearer of the double standard that we all Absolutely. Appreciate. It didn't bother me at all. If I want to sleep, you know, I never voiced it like that or thought it through like that. But the way I felt was I feel like having sex with somebody else, it's all right. But boy, you better not. Now, from the beginning of the relationship, the defendant was very controlling of Kathy. Well, I was always, always, always very controlling. He discussed an example of this controlling behavior again with uh, Mr. Jarecki and Mr. Smurling during the 2011 interview. You would ask Kathy to go to the social services office and pick up more food stamps, and she was very upset about that because she thought that that was not right or... Yeah, 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 I remember the food stamps thing. She thought we shouldn't be doing it. We don't need food stamps. Why are you doing it? And I think she felt embarrassed the supermarket with our food stamps. Over time, the conflict between Kathy and Robert escalated, reaching a boiling point in 1976 when Kathy discovered that she was pregnant. And how do you remember her letting you know that she was pregnant? How did, how did you find out? She called me. She, she'd thrown up a couple of mornings. And she said she was going to see the doctor. And she called me uh, during the day and said, I'm pregnant and I want to keep this baby. I said, I told you from the beginning, I didn't want children. There's no secrets. You agreed that we wouldn't have children. Um, now you're telling me you want to, you are, you're pregnant, which, you know, you're in charge of that stuff, not me. And you want to keep the baby. Well, you keep the baby you're going to get divorced from me, period. During Lewin's 2015 interview with Durst, the defendant explained how the abortion changed the relationship. Lewin plays the jury a clip of that interrogation. By the time Kathy disappeared, you didn't feel the same way about her that you did before, right? We were in love. That lasted about two years. Right. And then we had the thing with the abortion. Right. And that was the end of it. Now, the evidence will show that Mr. Durst also sought to control Kathy 
with his money. I would give Kathy a small budget. This is what you got for the week or month or whatever it is. If you want to spend more, don't talk to me about it. But did she have any other source of income? No. So whatever she gave her was, that was the That limit. was it. Like, 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 we're getting an abortion, we're getting an abortion. This is how much money you've got to spend this, this week or month, period. While Robert's marital life was deteriorating in New York, his friend Susan Berman was flourishing in California. After graduating from UCLA, Susan earned her master's in journalism at UC Berkeley and quickly entered the professional world, writing for the San Francisco Examiner and for City Magazine. The evidence is going to show that Susan was somebody who had a, a very successful group of friends, female friends, and that early on, Susan kind of hit her stride much more quickly than they did. She was kind of the star of her peer group. And what the evidence is going to show is that over time, Susan's life petered out and went downhill, whereas many of her friends became immensely successful. Now, one of the articles she wrote was on an aspiring musician named Nick Chavin. That is going to be the same Nick Chavin that is going to become a very close friend of Mr. Durr's, and he's going to end up playing a very significant role in this case. Now, Susan and Nick would go on to become lifelong friends. Susan's burgeoning career eventually took her to New York City, where she wrote for major periodicals, including The New Yorker. Nick Chavin followed soon after, hoping that his music would find a larger following in the Big Apple. To pay the bills, he got a job as a copywriter at an advertising agency. He was entry level, just above a temp, but everything changed when Susan introduced Nick Chavin to Robert Durst. The three became close friends, nearly inseparable, and when the Durst organization needed advertising, Robert gave the account to Nick, cementing their friendship and launching Nick's career. Robert's friendships were strong, but his relationship with his wife was increasingly contentious as Kathy gained independence. Kathy shifted her efforts to becoming a nurse. After graduation, she made the decision to apply to medical school. And in 1978, she was accepted by the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. Lewin now shows a clip from the 2010 film, All Good Things, starring Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst. The motion picture was directed by Andrew Jarecki and is loosely based on Robert Durst's life. After the movie premiered, Jarecki and Durst recorded commentary for the film. During the trial's preliminary hearings, Judge Wyndham ruled that during the trial, the prosecution would be allowed to show the jury the entire film, All Good Things, as well as excerpts of the film upon which Robert Durst offers commentary. What Lewin shows to the jury now is a split screen. On the right is the film, All Good Things. On the left, we see Jarecki and Durst watch the film and provide commentary. During the 2011 DVD commentary, Bob Durst discusses Kathy's desire to become a doctor 
in a what you'll hear is a very demeaning fashion and which again will be evidence of the nature of the relationship now eventually she did apply to medical school did you know that she was applying to medical school when she when she did sure um it, it, it encouraged her to do so but with a big uh, caveat that the people who go to medical school get real, real good grades, do real good on the MCATs. They, they mostly come from much better colleges than you went to. Um, you want to do it, do it. She applied to 15 of them and got interviewed and accepted. On the screen is a movie that's some reporters in the gallery who have been covering the Durst story for years wonder under their breaths if DeGuerin had forgotten about this crucial ruling. Right. Well, I asked they not cherry pick from hours and hours and hours of interviews. You present what you want to present, and I'll present what I want to present. Okay. Yes, Mr. Lewin. The court instructed Mr. Lewin that he's not supposed to direct his comments to other counsel. That's, 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 I believe Mr. Garrett just directed a comment to me, Your Honor. It needs to go both ways. Okay. No. Stop. Three. <laughs> This is Judge Wyndham's shorthand for preaching meditation principles to the jousting attorneys. The judge has proven skillful at deflecting the building animosity between these opposing sides. And he will have to continue to hone these skills as the pressures of a pandemic and the stakes of the trial mount on these lawyers in the months ahead. Wyndham overrules DeGuerin's objections to all good things. The judge reminds the jury that the film itself is a fictional drama. It's Durst's commentary on the film that's the evidence. Lewin restarts the clip. She applied to 15 of them and got interviewed and accepted at Albert Einstein. None of the others were interested. Lewin next pivots to establishing an emotional understanding of the emerging hostility that Bob was feeling towards his wife. Now, as Kathy became more independent, graduated nursing school, started medical school, started having success in her life, independent of Bob Durser, he began to lose control. You're gonna hear from Jimmy McCormick, who is Kathy's older brother, and he's gonna testify about his observations of the relationship. Kathy was moving on, and he I think he started to develop a resentment for her growing you know she was becoming more of a woman more of an adult more of a an accomplished professional and she would have when she had that doctor's degree she would have been you know basically self-sufficient um, which was her dream now the defendant himself again addressed this issue during the 2011 interviews with mr directly during the dvd commentary i was always 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 very controlling um, in terms of the stuff that's out there that I tried to get her out of medical school and that I wouldn't pay her tuition. So the evidence is going to show that, in essence, Bob Durst cut her off financially. And Kathy was forced to take out loans to go to school. Robert Durst couldn't handle Kathy's growing independence. He tried to control her career when he discouraged her from applying to med school. 
He tried to control her lifestyle when he cut her off financially. He tried to control her body when he forced her to get an abortion. But all that didn't work. Kathy decided she wanted a divorce. So Robert Durst changed tactics. He tried to control Kathy with violence. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Next time on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I don't remember the first time I had slapped her or hit her. Do you remember other times that... that oh, uh, yeah. By, by, by 1981, her life was half arguments, fighting, slapping, pushing, wrestling. He rushed forward and kicked me in the eye. Peter Schwartz ended up having a broken orbital bone. It was not a, a minor injury. Lewin's PowerPoint displays a photograph of a massive contusion under Schwartz's right eye. The damage is graphic. Skin pulled tight with swelling and bruised a grotesque dark purple. While the testimony regarding Durst's abuse of Kathy was emotionally gripping, this picture provides a visual representation of Durst's aggression. During the 2010 interviews, again, for the first time, Durst admits, you know what? I never talked to Kathy that night. That was a lie that I told to, quote, put her in the city. Did you end up speaking to her that night? No. Durst later explained to Jarecki his state of mind after Kathy's disappearance. Reporter missing, it's their problem. Mm -hmm. Put her on the train, she came to the city. I don't know where she is. She's not going to medical school. There's got to be something wrong. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst was created by Carrie Antholis. This episode was hosted and produced by Carrie Antholis and co-produced by Chris Terracone. The episode was written by Molly Miller with contributions from Karen Ann Coburn, Sean Smith, and Chris Terracone. The episode was edited by Tristan Friedberg Rodman. Music was provided by Strike Audio. For more information about the Robert Durst trial, head over to crimestory.com. This has been a Crime Story Media and ACAST presentation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.